E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Alfonso Cervola, the wine blogger, coverage of Italy on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Good to see you too. So now you're quite associated with Italy. It's something you write about. You work with the wines a lot. When did you first travel there? Well, my first trip was in 1971. And I was uh, I was at a university at Santa Clara. And it was, I was at a Jesuit art institute. And uh, they decided they needed to send something to the um, Jesuit headquarters over there in Rome. And so what I did was uh, I decided I needed to give myself a 20th birthday present. So I said, hey, I'll take it for you guys. And so I got to see the inside of the um, inner circle of the Jesuit headquarters in Rome. What was that like? It was pretty interesting. I mean, it was inside the Vatican. And these guys, you know, they're the money guys and kind of all the mystery. And uh, all of a sudden I was there with, you know, some pretty powerful priests and um delivering a work of art it was fun had a nice glass of wine a little cup of espresso and then i went on my way so it was a work of art they asked you to bring up yeah it was it was because we were we had an art institute that summer they had made something for the president of or the head jesuit father arupe so i went there and uh and after that i just walked around rome for about four or five days what was that like that was great i was on my own well the the first uh, kind of uh, point of uh, impact into Rome was August 15th, 1971. So that was the day of Ferragosto, but it was also the day that Nixon had devalued the dollar. So I didn't sleep on the plane. I was jet lagged. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to exchange money because it was Ferragosto. So I walked around near the uh, Roma Stazione Termina the main station and found a pension where they let me in and uh, I stayed there. And then I eventually got money a few days later and, and uh, spent about a week walking Rome. I'm a photographer by a hobby for some time now. And so I was doing a lot of um, walking and talking to myself because I wasn't really speaking a lot of Italian at the time. So therefore I was photographing, eating, drinking, Having a good time, just being 20 years old and walking around Rome by myself. I loved it. And you decided at some point you wanted to make it back there. Yeah, I did. Originally, when I was in high school, I was taking Latin classes. And the big draw for that was, you know, you learn more about your Roman Italian culture. When I did, um, took those classes, I was really uh, enthralled with with Italy in, in, in general. My parents had one time had wanted to move us all in the 50s when we were kids, to Palermo. And my sisters and I, I'm the youngest of three, um, we really kind of were disappointed that 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 didn't happen. So I I had a longing to go to Italy, and I was, seems like I'm the one who was the guy that would get out there, get on the planes and the trains and the boats and go see people at an early age. And it was that time of the history where young people were doing that. There was, you know, see Rome on five bucks a day. There were all kinds of books and backpacks and you know, there were a lot of young kids on the road at the time. So we kind of had our own little tribes that we were, you know, bouncing in and out of with. But 
It was fun. It was fun. And at one point, you spent six months just traveling around different parts of Italy. Yeah, when I was uh, a little bit older and got married, and my son was uh, not quite a year old, uh, his mom had inherited some money from an aunt who died, and uh, she didn't want to settle down. And you know, I said, "Let's go buy a house." And she goes, "No, let's let's go do something else." I said, "So." I was reading uh, Lawrence Durrell, who was an English author, and he had written about the Greek islands. And I said, well, let's go to Greece. She goes, okay. And I said, well, right, let's go to Italy. She goes, okay. So we, uh, we planned it, and we're there for about half a year. And we're there in time for the harvest of 1977, which was a pretty good harvest in certain parts of Italy, especially in Tuscany. Uh, we weren't there then. We were in Calabria. But it was still um, exciting. And it was a good chance for us to get out of the house so we didn't have to baby-proof the house. We just had a world at large that needed to be baby-proofed. But the Italians loved to, you know, you get tired of holding your own baby. There was always an Italian there to hold the baby for you and play with him and stuff. He probably hates me for it now. <laughs> what was 77 like in Italy? I mean, what was the scene like? Well, we came in through Brindisi because we came through Greece and... um that's my only second trip there. But Brindisi was very interesting. Apulia, we, we, we essentially just walked around Apulia for about a week and got our legs. I had uh, kind of a, an infection from, uh, like a staph infection from Greece. I think I, whenever we, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and we literally, literally, if that's the right word, and I kept records, we did Greece on $10 a day. For four of us, that's in, that included meals, transportation, hotels, and Christmas gifts, because we were buying gifts along the way. Italy was a little more expensive. It was 17 bucks a day. So when we came to Italy, I really felt like um, I, was, I wasn't feeling good. My leg was swollen. Anyway, I got medication and got it well and everything, and it was great. Um, the language was a little bit easier to understand. I love Greece. It was a really great place. But Italy was just a little bit easier and a little bit more easier to understand. And um, there was a little bit more diversity in the food as well especially coming into Southern Italy right around harvest time where there were vegetables and we were vegetarians at the time, which was unheard of in Italy. But it was really a, a great time to be there. Puglia was amazing. And then from Apulia, we, um, we took the train over to Calabria and um, got a hotel and started searching for my relatives there. They'd never been there. So, and nobody had ever gone back, that is. And I just had the name of some funny little town up in the hills. And uh, my wife at the time was in a lingerie shop, and she's an extrovert. And so she was asking uh, a lingerie salesperson about this town. And they said, oh, yeah, it's right up the hill. You just need to take a bus. And boom, you're, you can be there just in like 20 minutes. So that's we went up to the village, a little town called Buchita. And um, walked around the town, knocked on a few doors, asked if anybody had heard of this family's name that my grandmother had come from, this town. Nobody said anything. We went to the end of the town. We were a little discouraged. And we said, oh, well, it was worth a try. So then um, there were these two guys. I remember seeing them when they were on a, one was on a donkey and the other one was just walking. And they were older guys, like in their 70s. And they asked me if, in Italian, if uh, I was looking for a particular family, and I said, yeah, and they said, come with us, and they took us into a room, and uh, there was a picture of my parents' wedding day in the, on the, on the uh, wall, and they said, you're home, this is your family, <laughs> so we stayed there for about a week, 10 days, did a little bit of um, work in the vineyards, and did a lot more work in the cellar, they were... Uh, a little bit shy of bottles. And so at the end of uh, the like, night... Like they didn't have many. They didn't have a lot of bottles, yeah. So they... they And this was pretty uh, basic winemaking. I, you know, kind of like your friend from Lebanon was that kind of basic, you know, not a lot of sulfur, not a lot of anything, just grapes, squeezed grapes. And um, so at the end of the night, after we'd eat, we'd go down. It was great. Just all the guys, old guys plus me and... They brought out these three, four liter bottles of wine and not just one, but three or four and half bottles and any kind of thing. And we drank them and we had a great time. At the end of the night, I ended up understanding Italian a lot more than I did when I started. <laughs> and um, God, it was a great thing because we were bonding. I felt like we were and 
and they were family and we were drinking wine and all of a sudden, you know, the lights went off. I was just like, oh, wow. These people are making a life of this. This is great. I like this. And wine was a part of that. Yeah, it definitely was. They were the winemakers for the village. I mean, they were they were really into it. They were during that time of the year, they had harvest reports on the television, like where you could buy Greco and where you could buy other grapes. You know, they had indigenous names like Calabresi and and I thought they were um soccer scores. And I said, so who's winning? And they said, what do you mean who's winning? I said, well, you know, between the Grecos and the Calabresis. And they said, those are the prices of grapes. <laughs> they said, oh, wow, that's really cool. You're not into sports. You're into grapes. And they go, well, we're into sports too, but right now we're into grapes. And, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out if we can sell some of our grapes and make a little bit of money. And we're looking at it, it's like it was a little stock market report. It's pretty cool. On a little black and white TV, about seven inch, you know, black and white TV. You could see the lines running through it. It was very cool. I mean, it, it was up in the hills. I mean, it still is up in the hills, but it was, it was, it was, I don't, don't want to say tribal, but it was somewhat removed from the rest of the world. They lived in their own beautiful little microcosm. But, I was jealous of them in the sense because they had a washing machine and we didn't have one back home and they had a better car than I had. And I thought, well, they're doing pretty good. I mean, they had a good car and a washing machine and they were eating really good. I mean, as a vegetarian, boy, did we eat good there. Eggplants and tomatoes and peppers and things from the garden. And, you know, you could just go to heaven there. When you made it back to the States, where did you start living? Well, I was back in uh, LA. I was working in uh, Hollywood working in the restaurants. Yeah, I, the first really good restaurant I worked in was in Pasadena in a place called The Chronicle, which at the time was a, I believe it was a wine spectator, if they even had that back then. It had some awards, uh, and they had a really deep cellar. Uh, California wines mainly, things like Ridge, classic wines. I mean, there were there was Hansel and there was Ridge, and there was Sebastiani, you know, the 750s, not the big bottles. There was Madavi, there was Heights. There was all kinds of, of crazy wines in that cellar. And, um, you know, I was trying to sell some of those wines on the floor because that's how you made your money with tips, you know, making more money, selling more wine or food. And uh, that was pretty interesting. And then a friend of mine uh, opened up a restaurant in Hollywood across the street from Paramount on Van Ness. And um, Melrose, Melrose and Venice. And it was a French styled restaurant, a little bit of a California influence at that time. And um, so the wines were more French and Italian, no, French and Californian. So I learned a little bit about French. Um, it was interesting. I got a little bit more of the bug um, and then um, moved to Texas a couple years later. And you were working in restaurants in Texas too. Yeah, there was a. God, it was funny because I was driving down that road yesterday and I was thinking, wow, 30 some odd years ago, that was a real rough time. Um, but it got better. Um, a friend of my dad's, they grew up together in LA, uh, had a kind of a similar trajectory as I did. He ended up in Dallas um, after the war. He was in the Second World War and uh, was kind of emaciated. He'd been a prisoner of war and he was a football player at Notre Dame, real husky, kind of manly man. And and after the war, he was he was trying to just build his body back up. And he swore he would never starve again. So he opened up an Italian restaurant in Dallas. And he had a stream of them. But he had one called Il Sorrento, which was really the, the iconic restaurant of the times. So we're talking about the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he was one of these guys that just passed away last year. But he was one of those guys that was into everything. He was intellectually um, curious about everything. He loved food. He he was always tinkering and he was always traveling and he loved, you know, and, you know, he spent a lot of time in Rome. He'd tell me these great stories about La Dolce Vita and Rome and the Via Veneto in the 1960s. And he was a bit of a player. And, um, you know, he just had great taste. Uh, he had he had great taste in food and cars and design. And, and uh, so I went to work there. As a, as a server, just a wine, just a, a waiter, and they had a sommelier, and um, it was a it was a, a I thought she was a much older lady at the time. She was probably she probably just 
die if she heard that, but um, she probably was about oh, 34 or 35. And she had hot pants and and she had his, the silver Tostavan and she was a selling machine. And a restaurant served about 260 people at one time and turned the tables two or three times a night. So we'd get six to 800 covers on a good night. And everyone had two or three or four, if you were good, uh, tables. And I was, because I was friends with the family and because he didn't want to show favoritism, he worked me a little bit harder and, and I, you know, I caught no, um, breaks. I didn't really want any anyway. I just wanted to work, but I got bored in my section. And so I used to go to the Salmi and say, what have you got? That's interesting. And that wine cellar upstairs, she had an upstairs wine cellar that was air conditioned. I said, what's up there? What, what, what do you want to sell? Or what, let's, let's have some fun. You know, she was, so she brought out a 19 case of 1970 Vina Nobili de Montepulciano from Molini of all people. I don't even think they may, they might make it. It wasn't great wine by Vina Nobili standards, but by the standards of, you know, 1980 and a 10 year old bottle of, of wine, uh, it kind of knocked my socks off. And so I started selling it. We ran out of it. She got something else and she started buying Barbarescos and Barolos, old ones, you know, it's from the sixties and stuff. These things were incredible. We were selling for $20, $30 a bottle. And there were people that would come in. And even though it was a California and Italian wine list and some French too, there was I know the wine list always said at the bottom, we have a selection of Chateau Lafitte. Inquire with the sommelier. <laughs> I thought that was always funny. Because there was a kind of a feeling that an Italian restaurant needed to have French wine. Right, right. And we had a lot of um, uh, Persian guys that were students there, and they were really, uh, they loved uh, Chateau Neuf de Pop. They loved selling Chateau Neuf de Pop, de Pop and, you know, the, the Syrah and the whole thing. And and and, and so we, had, we sold a lot of Chateau Neuf as well. Oh, because they were Persian and Syrah. Yeah. So and, that and, was the connection. And I think it was also because it was the, the most expensive wine that they could sell. And they were, they were, they taught me how to sell in the sense that, not in the same way that they would sell, but, you know, size out your customer and, and don't undersell them. You know, push them. This is, Dallas in the 1980s, things were, you know, the TV show was on, the Cowboys were winning big, you know, there was oil was crazy. I mean, there was, I saw some crazy things in that restaurant, people spending money like it was water. So there was a way that they taught me to kind of become a little bit more confident in my own ability. And a lot of them are still dear, dear friends of mine. They still live there and they have restaurants. We still fight. <laughs> what did that restaurant, I mean, what was it like? What was it? Well, he, uh, it was designed by, uh, uh, a guy, his name, I think his name is Roy Morimoto. I'm not sure if that's the last name is correct, but anyway, he was a, he was a set designer for Walt Disney. So as you walked, the whole thing was basically to make you feel like you were in the Piazza San Giorgio with, um, in, in Venice. So that front room was this sunken room that looked like the Piazza San Giorgio right there in Venice. And it had birds up in the walls and it had lights and it had in the back, we had a gondola and a, and, and a, and a, and a little, I call it a bayou, but it was a little water waterway down there. I think at the, on Saturday nights when the restaurant closed, they'd have wild parties and some of the girls would go swimming in there. They had a pianist back there from time to time, but they had a couple of roving musicians, usually with a guitar, no, a, a violin and an accordion. They had bread boys walking around with fresh bread. They, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, on a Saturday night, it was like being in a Fellini movie. And they had these little back rooms and side rooms. And you know, there people were, you know, one guy's family would be in one room and his mistress would be in another room and he'd be running back and forth pretending he was going to see the, the owner. It was nuts, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and we sold a lot of wine and really what happened was it, it was an out springing for a lot of people who were springing. They were, they were going to own and run their own restaurant. He, he was the, you know, to use a kind of a worn out phrase, he was the godfather, but in a, in a legitimate sense, he, he was the guy that everybody really came from in those days. And then other guys came from other places as, as well, but it was a lot of fun. And, um, he didn't drink wine. I think I had one picture of him drinking wine. He was a J and B guy, but he really appreciated the fact that people uh, liked food and wine in in good combinations, high high class, high levels of combinations. So he never discouraged uh, me from you know going further. And in when I returned to to work with him as I was in my career, 
in the final days of his restaurant, I, I ran his wine list for him just as a, as a favor. He paid me a little bit, but uh, even in his final days of the restaurant, we had a really killer wine list. It was, it was intelligent. It sold well. Uh, it sold a lot of wine. What used to be in the market at that time? Well, in those days, um, I think there was Bola, Valpolicella, and Fiasco. So it was a squatty little bottle, and it was quite the number because it was, you know, it just looked like a boat with, you know, it was funny looking, but it, was, it sold really well. Rosatello, which was Rufino's Rosé, which at the time was drier than it is or it could it became during the White Zinfandel era. Uh, Fazi Patalia Verdicchio, and then there was Rufino, Rufino Reserva Ducale, the tan label and the gold label. And then there were things like Calisano, Barbaresco, and Molini, Vino Nobile, and there were always things that were popping up. Uh, I remember one time uh, Samia bought a case of 1975 Souverain Petite Syrah. And that was, uh, I love that wine. Bill Bonetti, who was the old time guy, winemaker at, um, Sonoma Couture. Before that, he was making this old vine, Petite Syrah. It was a gorgeous bottle of wine. Boy, I mean, it was, we talk about New California and those guys over there now that are drinking all those. You know, when I talk to them about wine like this, they just go, oh my gosh, you got to taste that wine? Because it was it was really, and taste it and drink it and uh, and enjoy it. And, and not so, you know, there were some really cool California things going on there as well. And then there was, you know, there was the French thing as as well. I mean, we sold a ton of Puy Fusé because it was easy to pronounce. We sold a ton of Peace Porter because it was, you know, it was, you know, we sold a ton of Pomard, you know, the peas, Peace Porter, Puy Fusé, <laughs> Pomard. And then eventually the the Italian version, the Pinot Grigio showed up. But in the meantime, it was, it was just a, and everybody who was anybody, politicians, actors, Sports figures came into that restaurant because he was, Mr. Messina was really a, a kind of the, he was the guy. Everybody wanted to, you know, come to his restaurant. He made everybody feel comfortable. His wife, who's still alive and is a dear friend, his daughters were working there. We had a Lady Carmela who was a fortune teller who was really good. She was great. And so, you know, it was one of those things where people would come for an evening and it was entertainment. Uh, they had a bar, like I said, with a piano bar. Uh, and then what happened is people would come there on their prom and then those kids would grow up and they would come and bring their kids. And, and there were multi-generations there. Uh, it was just, it was, it was an amazing kind of place to, to jump from. And I jumped. <laughs> that took you further and further into wine. Yeah. I, um, I was a single parent at the time. My son was uh, reaching school age. And uh, some of the guys uh, in the wholesale business said, you know, you're going to have to get a, going to have to get a day job because, you know, you can't be working nights with your kid. And I said, yeah. So I took a job kind of in the interim at a wine bar because I got to know a lot more people and I was a wine buyer and uh, wine bars were quite the, quite the thing in those days. There were about six of them in Dallas at the time. And I had, uh, I ran one and it was an experience. Uh, the chef left on uh, New Year's Eve. And I got in the kitchen for three months and cooked and uh, had a really nice little wine list. And then it really got to crunch time. You know, I really had to get a day job. So one of the distributors said, why don't you come work for us? I had no idea what wholesale distribution was. I had no idea how, how, how the, the three-tier system worked. I never knew it existed. I never realized it was so cruel and mean. But it, at the time, it was for me, it was a way to, to, to kind of take a another career move. And it was great. I worked for a small company that was based out of Galveston, Texas, and they had things like Monfortino and uh, Domaine Romani Conti and Schramsberg and Joseph Heights and uh, just amazing, amazing wines. Even that little funny little uh, Barolo that uh, Alice Firing loved, the Scanovino, we even sold that wine. And um, it was great because... I was touching a lot of different kinds of wines. And eventually, I became their Italian wine expert. And then a small company, a friend of mine, still, still a dear friend, you probably know him, Guy Stout, he recruited me to come work for the company he was working for because they were getting really into fine, fine wines. I'm talking about classified growths. We're talking about Grand Cruz of Burgundy, some of the great wines of the Mosul, ports going back to the you know beginning of the century, 
I mean, Sauternes going back to the twin vintages of the 20s, Madeiras, um, California wines. And he said, we need somebody to, you know, get our Italian thing together and, and, and help us focus that. So I went over there and worked with them for about seven years. So you did Italian portfolio yep. kind of management. Yep. I did. Became a sales manager in the meantime and, you know, kind of realized very early on that I am not a very good manager of people, but I do like to manage products and processes, but people I was not very good at. So I went back to the streets after that company was uh, folded into another company and folded into another company. And we were, there was a lot of consolidation going on there. There was an Italian guy in Dallas who was kind of like Mr. Messina, but of the wine world, his name was Tony LaBarba. Tony was, uh, he brought, he brought wine to, to Texas. He was, again, he was an extrovert. He knew everybody. He, he I mean, he went to Napa Valley and the way, and the, and the, the, the sea parted. He went to France and he and his wife would go for three or four months at a time. And every night they'd be at a different estate, France, Italy, Germany, you name it. He's well-loved. He was a great guy. He um, hired me to get back on the streets I loved working with those guys. It was just, it was just street work and, you know, just, just trying to be, you know, get interested in selling all kinds of interesting wines as well as making a better living. And then that company uh, folded into a, another company that was expanding large company called Glaciers, which I work for now, have, having come back from being a supplier for a while an importer. But uh, LaBarba was, uh, he was, he was the man. You can go back to Napa Valley and talk to some of the old timers there. And they, you know, you go talk to Peter Mondavi about Tony and they, I mean, they're about the same age. And it was a great, great thing to have that. I mean, I met Robert Parker. I met all kinds of people because everybody came to Texas, came to see Tony. He was, he was the deal maker. He was a good guy too. But it sounds like you were probably in Italy a lot during the eighties. Yeah, um, I was because um, we were, building our portfolio and, and, um, you know, I was trying to find a way. It's funny because a friend of mine, Paula Lambert, who owns the mozzarella company, she was just on television and she was talking about how she was just trying to find a career where she could travel to Italy without having to it come out of her pocket. And I didn't realize that, that I was thinking the same thing, but essentially I was trying to find ways to get to Italy, not necessarily because I didn't want to spend the money, but I wanted to have, I, I'm not a good person to just go on a trip. I found for those six months when I was in Italy and Greece with my family, I didn't have much of a, a purpose and it kind of, I think drove everybody crazy. Um, and so to go to Italy and to have work to do and to do things, uh, whether it's be working in the vineyards with people or tasting wine or meeting the different winemakers or going to the trade shows along with, you know, spending a time, you know, a couple of days at the beach or running around Rome or whatever, but it just, it, it completed the way I thought of Italy as being involved with working. And I also kind of had this kind of grand idea that, you know, I, I had this being a child of the sixties, I was thinking that, you know, I'm helping my people back home and I'm doing something that's not war related. Um, this is, you know, wine is all about peace. It's not about war. Um, and you know, this is the, this is the completion of the circle from the people in Italy who need their markets outside of Italy, as well as their, their internal markets. I'm, you know, I'm their ambassador. I'm their, I'm the guy that got sent to Texas and, um, burn the boats and, and, and forever is going to be their person that will help them tell the story about Italian wines. That was before the internet. <laughs> what was it like to go to a trade show in the eighties and in Italy? I mean, what was the wine scene like? It's funny. Cause there's that Vin Italy. You've been to Vin Italy. i never have. No. Okay. Well, it's, um, oh, there must be, 13 or 14 or 17, I don't know how many pavilions they have now, but, you know, a, a good 12 of them are the size of at least two to three football fields. So the place is huge. So back in the early 80s, probably about six of the pavilions were full-ish, you know, and, um, but it was a good way to, to see a lot of different people in one place. You could see people from Calabria. They were so precious, too. I don't mean that in a demeaning way either. But, you know, the people from 
Sorrento would bring their lemons, and the people from Puglia would bring their figs and their little almonds with the figs around them and the piece of chocolate. And, you know, you'd go in there, you'd taste their primitivo, and they give you a, a fig with an almond and chocolate, because that was, you know, you go over to Calabria and they give you, you know, a little crostini with some of their hot peppers. I mean, you go over to Sicily and you'd, ah, you'd, you'd have these, you know, they'd be making fish things and to go with their white wines. The white wines at the time were a little bit uh, darker in color than they are now. But, you know, they were really soulful people. You'd go to Piedmont. And they'd have, you know, some of their specialties there it was, you know, there was, everybody would bring their, their food because there was nothing there. And they still do, by the way, people still bring, you know, some of the, the real small producers, you know, they bring things from their, as if you were going to their place and you were going to eat or, or taste wine, you know, they'd bring out the salumi that they made. And it was great. In those days, you could meet anybody because they weren't behind, you know, clo- I mean, Angelo Gaia wasn't behind his citadel and, um, Pierre Antonori was, you know, not running from one to uh, 15 other kinds of ventures that he had there, you know, so you could meet them and talk to them and, and taste wine with them. You could actually taste wine with them. And, and, uh, what and, was that like? Uh, well, it was overwhelming really, because at even now, I mean, to, to go to Vinitaly and, and take a day and taste 60, 70, 80, hundred wines is, is ludicrous, but we do it. Just like you do in Bordeaux for the uh, the Grand Cru, uh, the premiere, and, and the, you know you're you're tasting all these new wines, and you're under hot lights, and there's noise, and there's you know, Vinitaly's gotten a lot better organized. Back in the day, it was it was you know they couldn't get their heating right or their cooling right, and depending on what the time of the uh, it was always the same time of the year, April. But you know sometimes it would rain, sometimes it would be a cold front, sometimes it would be hot. They couldn't get the air conditioning right. And then everybody was smoking. So, you know, you'd be just smoke, smoke, smoke everywhere. It's all, it's so much better now because people are, you know, they're outside smoking the inside. They've gotten their light thing down. They've gotten their temperature thing down. Everything's much more, believe it or not, even though it's bigger than it's ever been, it's much more relaxed. There's just more people. Or maybe it's just because I've been going to it for 30 years and I'm much more relaxed. But, you know, I... My problem is when I go to Vinitaly now, and I don't mean this in a bad, you know, like a bragging way. I don't mean it like that at all. Is is? But I sometimes I have to make, I have to strategically decide how I'm going to walk through a pavilion because if not, I won't get to my appointment in time. And I used to watch my friend Eugenio Spinozzi, who who did not manage his time as well. And so we'd be walking down somewhere and all of a sudden he talked to somebody and he couldn't talk to anybody for two seconds. He'd have to talk to him for 10 minutes and then we'd get behind and um, the thing about Vin Italy is if you have a schedule and you have, you have to see your, your clients and your customers or your, and you, t- you know, you might have customers there, you might have your producers there. You've got to, you know, honor their time as well, because it's, it's gotten a lot more intense. So sometimes I will walk around pavilions because I need to get to someplace in time. I hate that, by the way, I would rather just walk and someday when things will calm down, I would just love to spend two or three days at Vin Italy, just walk around and saying hello to people and just stopping and eating wild picked herbs and having it with their wine from, from the Veneto. Uh, and I get, I sneak that in from time to time. It feels like around the eighties would have been not just the time when there was really interesting kind of dynamic producers around, but also some interesting dynamic importers on the American side. Yeah. Well, at the time there was uh, Neil Empson and he's still around. There was Lou Iacucci, who really wasn't an importer. He was much more of a retailer. He had gold seal, gold star liquors in Queens. But he was a he was a catalyst. Um, Dominic Nocerino was around. He's still around, I think. Uh, Benifer Imports. Peter Matt and Leonardo Locasio had a company at the time. And I think then uh, they split up and, and um, eventually uh, Locasio uh, went on with Winebow. There were a few people, uh, Vias was around, uh, I think Fabrizio was around in the early eighties, mid eighties, kind of an offshoot of, of, of Winebow. A lot of the players are still around. They've gone into the next generations or they've grown. Seagram's had kind of a, a place. Julius Weil was the importer for, uh, Antinori. I don't think they're around anymore. What there wasn't was there weren't a lot of small kind of 
concerns. Uh, Armando Duram had something called the Inateca Duram, and he was uh, an amazing guy. He um, passed away in the late 80s, I think. Yeah, either he had a sailing accident or he had cancer. He smoked a lot. Barbara Ryan is the widow. Yeah, Barbara. She's still around. Yeah, absolutely. She, her, his American uh, wife, great lady. Um, but Armando really had a great taste. He was much more into the northern wines, but he'd bring in wines like Malfatti, which made a Salice Salentino down in uh, in Puglia. Uh, it was a lovely wine, and he 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 had a he had his way. Um, he brought in um, Paolo Scavino and Cavalotto, and there's another producer that's not as famous, Montanello, and and uh, he would bring wines in from Liguria. I think he liked to go there, uh, and he convinced me to bring in Vermentino and Pegato back in those days. He was up in Friuli. We were doing um, what we called Tokai at the time, but we did that, and we did um, Verduzzo, and we did Pinot Grigio and things like that. And, I mean, I, I look at the book of wines we sold in those days. We're talking the mid-'80s. Uh, it was pretty interesting, some of the things that now are coming back or have been back for a year or two. Interesting wines. I mean, Pigato, Vermentino. I mean, America wasn't in Texas. Are you kidding? They weren't ready for a wine that said pig or vermin. But we, you know, we tried. You know, I mean, I mean, they, people would always kind of break it down to the lowest common denominator. And if it had a funny name in Texas, boy, you had to make it simple. You know, Chianti. I mean, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. That was a, a challenge because it was such a long name and, and, and nobody could ever pronounce it, let alone determine the difference between that one and the one from Tuscany. They never even got to that point. We, we, we didn't have those discussions until the nineties, but um, we, we, we really had some interesting wines. My friend Eugenio Spinozzi with his company, Tricana and his partner, Sam Levitas, Eugenio's past. Sam's still alive. In fact, he's um, he lives and works in, in uh, Long Island. He's still bringing in some of those wines as well. Dear friend. And um, just, you know, grassroots. I mean, I mean, some of the wines that I, that I look at back in my cellar and I, I open up from time to time and just really look at those wines as the kind of history of it, the, kind of the history of, of Italian wine in the late 20th century in America, because it was changing. And there was really good energy in that. People were trying different things. Okay. So some of the guys in Piedmont were a little bit more enamored with Barique than maybe we think is politically correct today. But back in those days, these guys were, you know, they were, they were just 20, 30 years from a horrendous war that had destroyed bridges and roads and railways and their lives. And they were, you know, to stick a bottle, to stick wine in a small barrel from France was pretty high cotton in those days. It was exciting. Even, and the wines, you know, I had a, at the time, you know, coming from California, I had much more of a, a a California palate, so those wines tasted pretty good to me. And I I figured, you know, I can sell some of these. And then around the late '80s, I started thinking, you know, maybe these wines need because I started tasting other things. I started tasting the older stuff because we'd go over there and taste them, old Barbarescos, and I go, well, you know, maybe these people should also think about, you know, their their patrimony or their, or their, their history. And we, we had those discussions. They were lively. They were, you know, people were looking forward. They weren't looking backwards. They were looking, they were definitely going forward. So they didn't want to hear that. And, you know, that's the funny thing about when the next generation comes around, they, they, they have a tendency to look at things differently and not in the same way. So now it's full circle again. I'm excited about it too, to see some of these, Wineries like Scavino, for instance, you know, kind of dial it down on the wood and let the fruit come out and, you know, play with acidity and, and, uh, and let that, the soil and the grapes speak. And, and, you know, that's what the daughters are doing now amongst others. So what were some of these people like when they were a bit younger? Well, they could drink and eat pretty well and they could talk really fast. (laughs) Of course, I didn't understand Italian in that way. I'm I'm not fluent in Italian. I'm conversant, but um, you know, like our friend Jeremy Parson, who's not only fluent, but you could go stick him into a place where they're not even speaking Italian, and all of a sudden he's talking like them. He does that in Texas too. He starts talking like a Texan. It's funny. He's just got that amazing talent to to uh, be able to f- pick up language. But I didn't. But I was always and am 
much more of a, a visual person anyway. So I'm I'm looking for different cues when I'm in a room. Um, you know, everybody's talking and I'm looking at their pictures on their wall or their calendars or their books or talking to their kids or messing with their dogs or, you know, rooting around in the kitchen with the old ladies who, you know, are cooking and asking them what's this, what's that. So I'm, uh, I'm okay with that. I'm, I, I would have loved to have been more, how do you say, uh, able to talk to him, but I'm that way. Uh, even though I'm talking like there's no tomorrow here. Um, I'm that way with, uh, in English too. I, I take my cues visually as well. I remember the way Paulo Scavino's would come out in from the the older guy. Uh, what, what would be now the grandfather? Yeah, Paulo Scavino. he's passed away. He would come in. They would have to go out and get him in the uh, fields because he was working there till the dark. He would. I mean, can you imagine? I can imagine that. I mean, it's like if you're a hiker or a nature person, you're out there. You're with your vines and your and your you're just you're hanging with them, and and they're your they're your they're your they're your life. You know food that can come when the lights go down and you have to go inside um his son enrico who's about probably a few years older than me and enrico was uh you know very respectful of his father but was also given the opportunity to kind of try his hand at it as as well and um and i think he did a really good job there was this old guy that used to make a wine called uh brico del drago and uh and he, I don't even think his wine's made anymore. If it is, it would never be made in the way he was making it. But he was this amazing guy, and he'd take us to this castle where they had truffles, and and he was really a mover and a shaker, but in a real old, old-style way, but, you know, kind of business, real business, you know, in terms of the, you know, let's keep it, let's keep it, you know, straight. Let's not, let's not get veering off here. But his collection of wines, and we tasted a lot of his older wines. And, you know, these guys had the ability to taste some of these old, old wines. You know, the wines that we see now from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you're lucky. The wines you get to taste um, as well. Um, but can you imagine what it was like, you know, when they were young, those wines were younger and they hadn't moved too far and they hadn't gone through multiple hands? I mean, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I, you know... I'm sure I romanticized them to be a lot greater than they were, but the little of it that I have touched in those times uh, were, I mean, they're the stuff of, of great legends and memories. Not to say that we can't do that and we won't do that. We will in today's times as well, but just was, you know, it was a, it was a snapshot in time. It was great. It was great fun. And how were things coming along domestically? For Italian wine in the United States, as the 80s progressed, moved into the 90s, what changed? What stayed the same? White wine really became much more palatable. You know, I, my friends would send us white wines, and they weren't cold stabilized. And by the time they got to a, Texas, maybe the container was insulated, but it was never refrigerated. And uh, I mean, you know, I could call them orange wines, but they were definitely the same color. They were they were impossible to to sell those kinds of wines. And then the Italians would try and get us to buy things like Frizzante wines, and we had no idea what those were. People in America, you know, to them, Frizzante, you know, sparkling wine was Corbel, you know, or maybe Andre, or or maybe you know, if somebody got a really good made a big deal, you know, it was a bottle of Dom Perignon, but you know, there was no in between. And so there was a lot of that experimentation going on at the same time, Italian cooking and the whole European kind of Mediterranean style of eating. I, I have to credit California with being very instrumental in, in sending that message from the West coast, Alice Chapinese and, and people like that was it was amazing because we go out to the California wineries as well and uh, and haven't been you know pretty kind of aware of food and and freshness from Italy and from living in California and having a even though living in Texas I was no longer a vegetarian I had a had a more kind of tuned diet to vegetables and seeing how these wines that were coming from Italy were, and the people were cooking the foods, you know, pasta, mozzarella, prosciutto. Things were starting to come to the, you know, to the middle part of the country as well as to the coast, 
that were changing the way people thought about Italian food. So Italian wine started blowing up as well in a good way, along with, you know, major moving products like, you know, Pinot Grigio and um, things like that. Pinot Grigio was really the first, I'd say, superstar wine. I mean, Chianti was always there, not always, but it was there. But Pinot Grigio just kind of blew up in front of our eyes. I remember watching Seinfeld and he's, I think Jerry's with Elaine and, or he's with a date or something and she orders a glass of Pinot Grigio. And when I heard that, I went, oh my God, Pinot Grigio has arrived. Seinfeld's talking about it. And, uh, and of course, Santa Margarita was one of the first ones out of the hatch, but there was just all kinds of stuff going on there. Then that set the scene for other producers who were making wine in and around that area to try and see if, uh, because Italians would say, well, if you like Pinot Grigio, you'd love Lugana, or you'd love Bianco di Costoza, or you'd love wines from Friuli, or you'd love, you know, eating Verdicchio, or you'd love, you know, Galestro. <laughs> and we tried them all. So white was really kind of coming into its own. Red wines were were competing in a different in a different world because they were competing as well against the standards, the Chianti's and the, and the, and the Lambrusco's and the Amarone's and the Valpolicella's and the Barlinas. But, you know, things like Barolo, Brunello, Barbaresco were, were, were not common as common, at least in the middle of part of the country. So that game was really stepped up. And then, uh, you know, things like wines from Sicily started coming in. I mean, I'm, I know they, everybody thinks that Sicilian wines are a thing of the 21st century, but you know, we were selling a lot of Sicilian wine in the nineties and the eighties, just drinking wine, nothing, nothing to put away, but people were, were drinking it. And, and we were, we were getting people interested in, in things outside of, you know, Chianti. And then Chianti was kind of going through its kind of, I don't know, midlife crisis. (laughs) It's might still be having a little bit of its, a little bit of it, a midlife or uh, mid millennial crisis. <laughs> um, but the, the, the real kind of wind up to all this is that the momentum of Italian wines, um, it, I mean, literally put your seatbelts on uh, 1985, 86, because the next 25, 30 years was just going to be a good ride. It was, and there were some things, you know, there were scandals and there were setbacks, but you know, the, the Italians are like this, this beautiful physical body that heals really well. You know, you, you know, you burn yourself and, and then you go to the doctor and you get some gauze and you spend three weeks at the ocean and you come back and you start all over again. They're very, very resilient culture. Very, very interesting in that, that they don't always do the right things, but they always figure out, even if they screw up how to get themselves back on their feet, pull themselves up and move forward. That's a great thing about the Italians. Eventually it must've moved into that kind of Tuscan Piemonte boom or Tuscan boom at least. Yeah. Piedmont was still, I mean, even up until 10, 15 years, well, 10 years ago, I was maybe even less. Yeah. 10 years ago, I was thinking, God, is Piedmont ever going to come back? But Tuscany was really the, and is the darling because so many people love to go there. They love to go to Florence. It's easy to get there from Florence. It's easy to get there from Rome. It's easy to get there from Milan. They have vineyards. You know, people go to Venice, but they don't really place Venice as a, as a wine destination like Tuscany. I think Frances Mays helped a lot with her book and brought a lot of people to Tuscany was was always a destination, even before Francis Mays. But I mean, for America, she really gave people permission to to go to Tuscany, and 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 you know, people call me up and write me and ask for their for advice on where to go visit in Tuscany, and you know, I don't try and talk them into going to Umbria or Sicily if they want to go to Tuscany. I like to go to Tuscany. I want to have a vacation in Tuscany. I haven't had one in a long time. It's a great place. The land is, you know, it's like I was telling somebody the other day, you know, when these guys would come in from Milan, industrialized Milan, and every little inch was accounted for, and then they'd come down to Tuscany in the 70s, people like Leonello Marchese, and he'd made millions of dollars 
manufacturing car parts for GM and he'd see a plot of land and it was 300 acres and it was $30,000 and you know, it was nothing. It was, I mean, and it was like, it was like his own little planet and he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of people that were doing that, whether it was a 300 acre plot or a 30 acre plot or hectares or acres, doesn't matter. I mean, even the, the Mariani family who made so much money with Rioniti in the in the 60s and the 70s, you know, they they realized that, you know, that day would come where when the popularity of Lam- we weren't going to be selling 21 million cases of Lambrusco a year in America. And so they went to Tuscany. I think uh, Ezio Ravella was their consultant and he was from Piedmont and they had a little bit of business up there and he he had his hands and everything and he said, well, you guys got to come down here and start buying up this property because it's nothing. It's nothing. So they started buying the bottom land and then they started buying a hill here and a hill there and over over time they began to really irritate a lot of people <laughs> in the sense that they were really on top of the buying the property game and they were snagging up a lot of stuff. Well, that said, Tuscany, um, you know, some of the people that have been there for a couple generations, like the Antonoris and, and those kinds of people, Ricasolis, they were still firmly embedded in the place as well. But a lot of people would come. I, I can't believe how many times I read about somebody who came from Milan or and, and in the seventies or the eighties, usually the seventies and their father was, you know, a, an art director or a, he ran a company that had to do with looms and they just needed a place to go in the summertime to, to relax. And they bought a piece of property in Tuscany. And now those are famous places. I mean, I, I can't remember all those things. And so there's a huge amount of, of energy in Tuscany with people who are well-traveled, who are mobile, who have income and ambition, along with the the local people who are fairly still very um, humble and earthly and, and, and wonderful to be around as well. So there's this beautiful kind of juxtaposition of, of well-traveled, upwardly mobile people who see a worldview and people who are back on the farm who, you know, are milking the goats and walk in the fields and, you know, are content to not go any farther than Siena on a Sunday. Did that well-traveled worldview filter into other regions? And if so, how did it affect things? Well, I think it definitely traveled to Sicily, you know, uh, Planeta and the Rallos from Danafugata and a few other producers as well that I'm probably not remembering now. So uh, the, the Tosca and Del Marita family as well. Um, these were people who who had been successful in ventures in Italy, whether it was with their uh, co-op or with their farms or with other businesses and went to Italy and had friends on the mainland and saw the the unlimited potential of Sicily and uh, decided to you know put their stake in the ground and and uh, build their empires and they did and you know back in the eighties and the nineties and the nineties Planeta Chardonnay I mean it was it was like a an, it was like an odd odd thing but it was you know it it worked for the time. And um, it put them on the map, and uh, it, it's they've been selling really well. And what they've done is they've incubated the island, the, you know, the handful of producers there that were big and saw the potential, and uh, smaller producers are people who just wanted to farm five acres or ten acres and make these small production wines. Started coming back to Sicily as well, and you can find that in other places. Umbria to a lesser degree, Abruzzo, Marche, Puglia, which is a larger production area. So there's there's a lot more kind of moving parts in terms of the the product. I mean, even Johnny Cantale makes a really nice wine, but they make a lot of really nice wine. They don't make you know ten thousand cases. You go up to the Alto Adige and and Trentino and Friuli, and you have the producers who are uh, in a whole different mindset from the Sicilians in terms of the way they think, the way they eat, what they read, how they travel, their political persuasions, uh, 
you know, and, and, and all this was with communication. And then Piedmont as well was, was just humming along. I said, you know, 10 years ago, it was a little bit in a little bit of a funk and it was. And I remember writing about it going, gosh, when is this, when is Piedmont ever going to get out of its funk? When are we, when are people going to love Barolo and Barbaresco again? <laughs> well, well, people are loving it now <laughs> because there's, you know, not a lot of it to be found as much as there was back in those days. And, and that's good. It gives these people uh, a certain amount of, of, a great amount of satisfaction knowing that those two, three, four, five generations they spent since the end of World War II has come to fruition. Yeah. So they're driving around in fancy cars and yeah, so they're spending, you know, traveling the globe. But like one Piedmont person told me, they said, you know, we, we do like to travel the globe and we like to go all over the world, but we like coming home. We love coming home. We stay here for a while. We get bored. We leave again, but we always love to come home. What about your own writing? When did your blog start? About 10 years ago, nine years ago, I was, um, I was just getting involved in this. Uh, I don't know, blog, the blog looked interesting. Uh, it, there weren't many out there. I didn't even know how to find them. And essentially, I was just trying to find a way to put down, I was involved in education in our company as well. And I was just trying to write down notes so that when people would ask me certain questions, I'd have something where I could just say, well, go here, go there, go there, do this. You know, do you want to know about this? Well, it kind of never really became that because um, then I decided I wanted to be more involved in the visual side of it as well as the the verbal side of it. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, Photography is a big part of my life. I have a darkroom at home. I've been taking pictures for going on 50 years now. Started when I was young. And um, I've got some pictures that I've been taking in Italy for the last 40 years or more. And and now they're starting to be so old, they're historical. But what I would do is I would look at those pictures and then I would start writing about wine. And so now what the blog, the blog really became this... Um, and you've got to, I, I say, you've got to really find people, you've got to find blog comrades, so to speak. You have to find people so that you can keep the conversation amongst yourselves alive. Because, you know, the 20 or 30,000 or 20 or 30 people or whatever that are reading it in a month or a year or a day or whatever, they have other things to do. And if it's your, you know, I have, I have relatives that say, oh, are you still writing that blog? Oh, I just don't have time to get to it. And they, you know, they're like, they apologize. I go, well, I'm not really writing it for you. I have a group of people that read it and, you know, they come and they go and I understand everybody's busy. And sometimes I don't even remember some of the things I've written. I have to go back and read them too. So it's okay. You won't offend me. My mom, my hundred year old mom reads it, but that's because she's my proud mom. But I realized that. But what I found was I started getting contacts in the in the writing world or people that I liked. I remember uh, Eric Asimov wrote about Jeremy Parson in when he was blogging the poor. And for some reason I got to know Jeremy, became friends with him. He moved to eventually moved to Texas, uh, married a girl that I introduced to him, but we still have this kind of a, I wouldn't say it's a competition because he does his thing. I do my thing, but we do keep each other kind of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say alive as much as just kind of peaks, pique his interest you know he piques mine and, and hopefully i do his you know because he kind of you know you know he he likes to blog a lot more often than i do because he has a lot of other things that he does but as far as the kind of the intellectual aspect of the italian wines he, he's there and, and he's kind of checking me on that eric as well is a good uh, is a good person i know it sounds crazy but hosemaster ron washam i mean uh, he, he and i communicate and uh, even though he's writing in a different style, you know, the satire of it all, you know, he's got some thoughts about stuff. I mean, the whole thing is, is writing about wine. It's kind of like being a cartoonist. There's not a lot of money in it. You know, you're not going to get a, a, there's not a lot of people going to get a full-time job doing this. And, um, and I'm not so sure if somebody were to say to me, Alfonso, we want you to write for us. I'm not so sure I would want to because the the writing that I do, either for the blog or for other publications, it's a big pain in the butt. It's hard. I mean, you don't just spew it out and then then spell check it and send it on. I mean, yeah, some of it's that way. And if you go back to the older ones, it's even worse. But writing is like anything else. It's 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 a, it's it's a it's a craft. It's an art. It's laborious. It's excruciating. It's painful. And um, and I, and I like it, 
but um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's just one person saying a bunch of things that there's millions and millions of us. And if if what I say from time to time has significance, I'm happy for it. But really, it's a journal. It's a it's a log of of whatever it is that I'm uh, you know, coming across my path. You know, when I travel to Italy, I spend more. I blog more often because I feel like it's I'm on the trail there, so I want to take the pictures and talk about it. But when I'm not there, I really want to be more involved with, um, you know, just my thoughts about wine from my perch. And um, I've, I've had the great fortune to meet a lot of great producers and people, and um, and not just people that are producing. I mean, Augustino, the cellar master at Illuminati, who is like one of the great characters of wine. I love that guy. I mean, I would have never met Agostino if I hadn't, you know, gone to San Benedetto del Tronto and spent time over there. And and, uh, and there are all kinds of people like that in, in, on the trail. I mean, just everywhere you go. I mean, uh, the guys that the, the guys that have the sheep on the property near Volterra, where a friend of mine has a place that I go to and stay. You know, I, I just like walking up to them when they're, you know, milking the sheep and the cats are licking the milk. And, you know, we're talking about his mother-in-law who comes from my family's village and who I most likely am related to. Um, the, the, you know, it, the wine isn't just pH and acidity and barrels and, and, and grapes. It's, it's, it's the people, it's the things that go around the grapes, the dirt, the soil, the, the other, the other things that are growing, the people, the food, uh, you know, it's it's uh, one of the things I had in college was a teacher that said, "Don't ever specialize." It's funny because here I am considered kind of a specialist in Italian wines, but inside of my head, it's you know that that's part of a gazillion other things that are running around there. And Italy is is a piece of the puzzle, and it's a wonderful piece, and I love it, and I love the wines, but it it's part of a larger a larger puzzle. What surprised you over the course of? watching that wine trail what really surprised me is that i was at for a while i was really fearful that it would go the way of 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 big wine you know the the big the big mega production but then i realized it's kind of like politics in italy you know you you've got 70 million different political parties running around italy and 70 million different opinions and and even though and, and it's amazing how italy gets anything done if you think about at any level but at the level i mean that they're producing whether it's a ferrari or a a bottle of you know sasikaya i mean the, the 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 level of quality and intensity and at all at all different levels where you have you know you take a co-op for instance and i'm not talking about famous co-ops like Prodotorio barbaresco or uh, Cherlon or anything, but just take a, a co-op in Abruzzo. There's a guy, there's a director there. And man, if that guy, if wine isn't his whole life, then, I mean, then, then you don't know this guy. I mean, his, his whole, he goes to, I mean, he's a good father and a good husband and a good Catholic, but man, if this guy isn't thinking all the time about how to make his Montepulciano de Abruzzo better, I mean, and, and you multiply that times however many people you see in Italy times a hundred or a thousand. And that's the big bang of Italian wine that Italy is, is because everybody in that room, those rooms, those pavilions, so many of them, it's their whole reason for existence. It's their whole life. I know that sounds Pollyanna, but I've, I'm not you know, you can put me on the rack. You can waterboard me. I'm still going to feel that way because I've seen it for thirty some odd years at Vin Italy, and traveling the trails. We're we are we're hobbyists compared to the down and dirty winemakers in in the little nooks and crannies of Italy. Whether they're making a hundred cases for their village, or they're making a thousand cases for their region, or five thousand cases for the greater world, those are the real stories and I, those are the stories that uh, i keep running into and and that's something italy is i don't think is ever going to run i mean you read about it and people are talking about but you know people are coming back to the they're, they're coming back to the to the country i've i've met 
producers in Scansano, young couples who were living in Milan, who didn't want that life, who are now trying to figure out how to sell their Morolina di Scansano, which is not easy uh, in today's world. And, and they wouldn't live a different life. They would not change anything. And, and you multiply that by every region, by, you know, by wines you and I have never heard of, nor probably will never hear of. I mean, there are thousands of them out there, not just in Italy, by the way. Alfonso Cervola, he's on the wine trail in Italy. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Alfonso Cervola. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.